Welcome to another exciting episode of the Andre the Beast Creighton Show. My co-host, <laughs> my co-host, Yolanda, brandologist. <laughs> As you can see, I was not paying a bit of attention to what you guys were talking about because I'm doing my due diligence research here. Uh, Yolanda, election is coming up pretty soon, all over, right? In some places. In some I, we places. know it is in Alabama. That's right. And we have... In August. In August. And and um, you know what? I'm going to let you introduce our guest. Absolutely. I think we have a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to have a conversation today with Mr. William Bell, who was the former mayor and he is now the future mayor yeah, of yeah. the city of Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome. <laughs> you like thank that? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome, welcome. You welcome, know they Mr. say Bell. speak it as it's so, right? You speak it as it's so. With, there you go. With that said, Mr. Bell, thank you for being on the show. Um, tell the viewers a little bit about your journey into politics real quick before we start asking questions. Well, well, first of all, I, I want to thank you guys for allowing me to be on your podcast and to talk with your viewers out there and to share with them, you know, uh, some information about myself and, and what my goals are. I was born and raised right here in Birmingham um, uh, during the changes that took place because of the civil rights movement. Uh, my educational background, I was probably one of the first to uh, attend integrated uh, high schools in the city of Birmingham. Uh, and during that period of time, it was instilled in me that while I was given opportunities uh, to uh, participate in a way that no other African-Americans had participated before, that there was an obligation on my shoulders to give back, you know, not just to receive an education and then go off into the world uh, in other directions, but to receive that education, to come back to my community and make it better than, than what it was. And so I, I have a great appreciation for all of those who instill not only educational uh, knowledge in me, but a, a sense of community, a sense of wanting to be a part of something bigger than, than my individual self. And that led me to meet a lot of individuals um, throughout my, my, my lifetime that helped move me in the direction of being able to uh, get involved in the political arena. I did not set out to become a politician. Um, uh, fast forward, after I uh, got my master's degree in psychology, I worked as a probation officer for a period of time. I also um, worked as a uh, sales rep and sales manager for the Xerox Corporation. But at some point in time, I uh, communicated with an individual by the name of David Hood, who was a local attorney who uh, had the foresight and the insight instilled in me that it was time for me to get involved uh, from a civic capacity. And in that capacity, uh, in 1979, I won uh, a race to serve on the Birmingham City Council. Um, uh, that was during a period that uh, my lovely wife, along with myself, we had two children, a son and a daughter. And so being a young person involved in the political arena and, and having young children, it put a burden on the family, but it was a positive burden mm -hmm. uh, from the standpoint that my entire family was a giving family. And so from there, I went on to uh, serve as the uh, first African-American president of the Birmingham City Council. Uh, mm -hmm. I also served in 1999 as uh, one of your uh, guest hosts there, uh, Ed Moore knows, as the uh, interim mayor of the city of Birmingham. And then in 2009, uh, December of 2009, I was elected uh, as the uh, mayor of the uh, city of Birmingham. When you talk about the civil rights movement, Take me down down yep. that road, because we all know that the, the yep. South was really deeply impacted with with this movement, and no more so than the state of Alabama, Birmingham, Huntsville, the surrounding area. So, take me down that that road that you went through and that you saw in during these this uh, civil rights uh, movement era. Well. 
to, do I call you Beast or do I call you Andre? You call me. You call. <laughs> you, you, whatever's gonna give me uh, uh, some, some some views. <laughs> you can just call him. You can well, just call me Beast. You know, uh, early on in, in, in my youth, I wasn't aware of discrimination or segregation because that was the way it always was. And if you don't know anything different, right, uh, then you don't have any ex expectation uh, beyond that. Right. So I didn't really know that I was being discriminated against. I just knew there was certain places that you did, just didn't go. Mm -hmm. I knew there was certain things you just didn't do. Right. Uh, we couldn't go to the, the fair. We couldn't go to the zoo except, uh, except for special days. Uh, there was just certain things you couldn't do. But at, at about the age of about 12, uh, my grandmother took me to a church called New Pilgrim Baptist Church, mm -hmm. in which there was a minister by the name of uh, Martin Luther King yes. who was speaking on that particular occasion. And when she took me there, I, I didn't know why. You know, I'm 12 years old. I don't know right. any, any difference. And so I was sitting there, and I really didn't understand the full impact of what Dr. King was saying. But I knew the power of his words made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Right. And after he finished uh, uh, with his sermon uh, at that rally, uh, my grandmother took me to two gentlemen. One was named Tommy Wren, who was a local activist, and the other one was James Orange. And anyone who was involved, especially young people who were involved with the movement back then, they knew James Orange because he was the tall, lanky uh, 19 to 20 year old that organized all the youth to be a part of it. And uh, he later on became a minister, and he also became an activist within the union. Uh, and very, everybody knows Reverend James Orange. Well, those two gentlemen shaped and, and gave me the insight as to what the issues were uh, surrounding segregation, of not allowing people to live up to their fullest potential, uh, treating them less than human, not uh, giving them the opportunity to be uh, all that they could be. And they got me actively involved here at the local level uh, in the civil rights movement. Uh, I, I can recall on one occasion when Dr. King was jailed uh, in the Birmingham jail, we had a march and visual, visual from uh, New Pilgrim Baptist Church to a park that was right across the street from the city jail. Now, during that period of time, we had Eugene Bull Connor, who was the commissioner of the police uh, here. And we all just knew we were going to jail that day. And he used to ride around in this armored tank-looking vehicle. And he showed up as we arrived at the park and began to, to, to pray. And we thought for sure they were going to turn the water hoses and the dogs on us. But he popped his head up out of that armored vehicle, looked at us, and he said a couple of curse words and turned back around and went the other way. And we continued with our vigil. And about maybe a week later, Dr. King was released uh, from uh, prison. From, from the city jail. But what a lot of people don't know, Dr. King could have left jail the same day that he was arrested. But he said that he would not, he refused to be released until all the kids who had been arrested during the marches in Birmingham were also released. Uh, and uh, he had people like Harry Belafonte out raising money all across the, the country uh, to uh, make sure that the kids had their bills to be released from jail. And I was hoping on that day that, um, um, we had the visual that I would be arrested. It was so disappointed when Bull Connor <laughs> turned around and went the other way. And, and you know, we, we, we missed our chance. But uh, that was a little of what was going on during that period of time. Uh, on the Sunday that the church was bombed, um, mm -hmm. um, one of my cousins was, was in that bombing, and she was killed, uh, Carol Rob uh, Robertson. Uh, she was killed in there. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Denise McNair was a friend of our family. Uh, the other uh, girls, everybody, it seemed like everybody in Birmingham knew those four girls who who, who were killed. And uh, it, it just struck a chill. And that solidified the resolve that we had, that we were not going to let Jim Crow stand in the way of progress being made in, in the city of Birmingham. And that's why uh, years later, in fact, um, one of the last acts that President Obama did as president he designated the Civil Rights District, which included 16th Street Baptist Church, as a National Historic District. Uh, we had worked on that for about five years, and it came to fruition on November 13th of 2017 when, it, when he left office. Wow. And uh, I, I will forever be grateful to him for that. What actually, you, 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 
what an honor to to, to be young and to uh, hear the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King and and and, and yeah. be a part of that movement, even with the tragedy that that that, that transpired. Now you're moving forward into the let's move forward into the political arena. What was yeah. the driving force that? led you to go there and when you decided to take that oath to go into the the office of mayor um what changes did you want to see what was the number one thing on that when you took that oath to go in there based on everything that alabama was going through what was the one thing that you wanted to see happen more than anything to uh when you became out when you got into office my mindset was shaped on the day of the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church, because I recall that the mayor at that time was a gentleman named Albert Boutwell. And we had had bombings, you know, uh, no one was killed, but we had bombings leading up to that uh, that day that the church was bombed. And he stood there on TV, wringing his hands, saying there was nothing he could do. Mm. And I was thinking as a, as a kid, <laughs> you're the mayor of, of the city. You're in charge of the police. You can do something about this. You can have people arrested. You can have people investigated. And that stuck with me all throughout my teen years and my early adult years. And so when, when, when I finally took the oath of office of mayor, I wanted to be the kind of mayor that could be the change that we saw, that could uh, build stronger communities, that could um, uh, instill in our police officers that, yes, we want you to make our streets safe. But we also want you to, to treat our citizens with, with dignity and mm. respect. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we could do the things necessary to change the lives of our students by giving them decent educations and not to uh, study from secondhand books like I had to do. You know, the books that I studied from were 10 or 15 years old by the time I got them. Right. And, and so we wanted to make we wanted to be the change. I wanted to be the change that uh, uh, um, I knew I could be because of the lack of effort on the part of that mayor on that day that the bombing took place. That stood out, out in my mind the day I was sworn in. This is amazing because this, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm getting chills. This is personal. I get the sense this yes. is personal for you. You know, a lot of politicians <laughs> run for popularity, you know, not necessarily for the true cause of things. And mm -hmm. so this is amazing to see this. And when you think about it this way, what do you feel like you were able to accomplish in the couple terms that you did serve within the office and that you will get back to serve again? Well, first of all, let, let me say this. Um, despite my being a politician, I, I try to be a very humble person. Because I know from when, from whence I came, mm -hmm. I know that my parents were not rich individuals, but they knew that education could change my life. And they made sure that my sister and brother and I got the education that we could go further than they ever could. Uh, I received a, a graduate degree before my parents did. Uh, I was the first in my immediate family to go to school, even though I was not the oldest. I mean, go to a, a college or university, even though I was not the oldest. Uh, so I... I I always try to maintain that that sense of where I where I came from, and some of the things as mayor that that I'm uh, honored for is the fact that President Obama sent me to uh, Geneva to participate uh, in the Human Rights Commission to talk about some of the issues that were facing our country, and this was shortly after um, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, mm. uh, Missouri. Yes. Uh, prior to that, uh, you had uh, Trayvon, who had been been murdered. In fact, Trayvon's mother and father were in Geneva, Switzerland, to also speak to the Human Rights Commission. And when I came back, I was asked uh, by the Justice Department to go to Ferguson, find out what was really going on. And when I met, went there, uh, I found out that surrounding St. Louis, you had a lot of small little towns or cities and they were all being predominantly black, uh, small towns and small city. And the police force in those cities were not part of the city government. They belonged to a police commission uh, that was overseen by the county government. So you had officers in the community policing those communities that had no real ties to that community. Mm -hmm. In fact, none of the officers actually lived in that community. I think later on they got one officer. But what I also found out during that period of time, that the money that the police officers collected in fines and fees, such as 
you know, if you're speeding or got a busted tail light or, or things of that nature. Well, you paid your money to the city in which the ticket was issued, but the city had to turn that money over to the police commission. And the police commission there, um, in, in I think it's Jefferson County, they in turn put that money into the salaries and bonuses that the police officers made. So that was an incentive for the officers to, write more to tickets. give as many tickets yeah. as they could for whatever they could. Wow. And on the day that Michael Brown was, was killed, that police officer didn't know what had transpired at the store. You know, some people say, well, the officer was trying to stop Michael Brown in order to uh, arrest him for the incident that occurred at the store. Well, that was not the case. He stopped Michael Brown because Michael Brown was jaywalking. Yeah. But in Michael Brown's mind, he thought the police officer was responding to what had happened in that in, in that store. So you had a confusion going on. But the fact that that officer was not a part of the community, that officer was trying to uh, uh, have a revenue stream, so to say. Mm -hmm. And so I reported that information back um, uh, to Washington, D.C. And out of that was the 21st uh, century policing program that the city of Birmingham was a part of uh, that President Obama initiated. And we had, uh, right now, uh, there are a lot of cities that have adopted that. And that's one of the ways that we can come to some understanding as to what we expect from our police department. What, what, uh, how do we uh, change the mentality from an occupation force to a community force that wants to help build up our communities and not just be an overseer of our community. Mm. And so that's one of the biggest thrills that I had, along with the fact that we got the national designation for a national historic district for our civil rights district. What changes have you seen take place since you've been in office outside of that? What more, what other additional things have happened? Uh, clearly you got rid of the outside police sectors coming in and fleecing the the neighborhood and taking funds from communities but have you seen a joint venture with the caucasian communities the up, upper scale communities to work with the lower end communities in your uh in alabama well what i've seen take place just over the last year um since george floyd's um um killing was the fact that we had so many non-african americans come out to protest. Mm -hmm. In years past, when, when that occurred, you only saw black folks out there in the streets saying something has got to change. Mm -hmm. But we had so many people come forward on this occasion to say something is wrong Yes, yes. for a man to be killed in such a manner. And it was one of the first times that we had actual video from different perspectives. So you couldn't deny what went on. You couldn't say, well, he, he was fighting us or he did this, even though they tried to say that. You can see with your own eyes what happened during that period of time. So I, I guess the changes that I've seen is that more people are beginning to understand the plight that African-Americans have had to face ever since we were brought into this country up the James River and, and, and sold on the first auction block as slaves in this community. People are beginning to understand that there's a subliminal, hidden, undercover racism, what do you call it, institutional racism mm -hmm. or whatever, that pre prevents our children from being educated, that prevents our uh, young people from getting jobs, that prevents young families from living in communities that are prospering or thriving, that prevents our senior citizens from, from getting the medical help and, 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 and the sense of serenity in their older years. And so I'm beginning to see that change come about you know, they, they used to say that, well, Obama's uh, presidency represented a change in America. It represent, op represented opening our eyes up yes. to the limitations that had been in place. But with his election, it now shows us the promise that is there. But we still have demons in our country that we have to overcome. Yeah. Uh, I think the last four years have shown us that, that there's still demons out there. Uh, that's that's working right now to change the voting <laughs> rights right. laws, yeah. to, to make it illegal for someone just to give a bottle of water to someone. Exactly. There's still demons out there that say that it's okay if you uh, uh, run into a protest in the street with your car. We're going to pass a law that says you can't be prosecuted. That's being proposed in one one state right now. That it's okay to uh, um, for one group to carry guns into the Michigan State House. But it's illegal for you to carry a bottle of water outside the White House. You're going to be gassed and, 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 and run over by horses. 
So those demons are still out there. And you have to have the understanding that through the political process, you can make that change. And that's what my candidacy has always been about. That's what it's about today. And I won't change that. It sounds like, let, let, let me ask a question to Mayor um, Bell. This is one of the reasons I called you the other night um, after um, Biden's uh, State of the Union address. What's yep. your What's your take on uh, Senator Tim Scott's rebuttal? <laughs> 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 oh boy, Timmy, Timmy, Timmy! I give him his respect, uh, the senator. You know, I've, I've met Senator Scott, and uh, believe it or not, he, he's done some some good things as as it pertains to. Uh, capital investments in minority neighborhoods. But this guy, I mean, he, I don't know if he just doesn't get it or if he just doesn't care about what's happening in his party, the suppression of black votes. You know, sometimes we think just because we get pulled out the field and we can work in the kitchen that, you know, we house Negroes got it better than those field Negroes and we don't know why they, they all concerned about working out there in that hot sun. And I think uh, Senator Scott kind of suffers from a little of that. Uh, and it's not all about economics. Right. It's about our social fabric. It's about yeah. giving people the respect and treating them as human beings. And just because you lose an election, you're going to go and try to turn over the whole apple cart. Uh, and he's, he's buying into all of that. Uh, his rebuttal was pathetic because of the Thank fact you. that our president is finally trying to do something that should have been done decades ago to give all of us an opportunity to rebuild our, our country through its infrastructure work, but rebuild our families and rebuild those individuals. Uh, because if you give a man or a woman a job, they're too tired to get out there and do stupid stuff in the street. If you educate them and give them the tools to, to survive in a decent manner, they will do that. And but if you take well. away that education, mm-hmm. if you take away that opportunity, it's going to lead to chaos in the street. Yeah. Mayor, you, um, you've been away from the office for a while, and yes. you're, you're coming back strong. So the question lies, what did you learn from the time off? What did you see that needed to be addressed during your time off? And more importantly, why the comeback? Because there's something that you see that that we're lacking, and not just in Alabama, but I would say worldwide that you've seen lacking. And clearly your years of experience and the things that you've been through, you must be coming back because these things have not been addressed. You've, you have the potential and you have the knowledge to get it done. Am I right or wrong on this? Oh, absolutely. The one thing I'm confident in is my ability to um, move the city of Birmingham. I'm, I'm totally confident about that. Um, Yolanda and I talked on, on yesterday, today, I believe, about, you know, how did I lose the last election? A lot of people asking me that today. And part of the reason is uh, going back to the fact that I didn't toot my own horn. I didn't tell people what I was doing or why I was doing those things. And they saw progress being made, but they did not attach that progress to the person who made it happen, because I wasn't telling my own story. Mm. I, I had a lack of presence in social media. Um, campaigning and elections have changed. Uh, it's, it's not the old uh, get out there and grind and, and, and uh, having rallies and doing all of those things. That's part of it. But now you have to have a stronger presence in social media. You got to be able to use the technology for geofencing. Understand that you can identify specific households in an area and send them a tailored message as to what their concerns are and how you can address those concerns. But the one thing that 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 happened to me when I left City Hall, I didn't realize how much pressure uh, I was under, and, and, and no one who's in the midst of being in office, because I've talked to several other mayor, former mayors, and they all said the same thing. You don't realize the pressure that's on your shoulders until you step away from it. Mm-hmm. And that pressure is relieved. Uh, you know, you're able to play with your, your children or your grandchildren. You're able to do things that normally you didn't have time to because you were running a city. And then it got to a point where 
people began to be concerned about the rise in violent crime in our community. People became concerned about the lack of addressing uh, overgrown lots and dilapidated houses in the community and not putting the resources back in the community that were promised. And they began to come to me to ask me, would I consider to, to run again? And in that consideration, I had to pray, Do I, did I want that pressure? It's, it's one thing to have pressure put on you when you don't know it's there, when you don't know what to expect. It's another thing when you know what the job entails. Right. It's another thing when you know the, 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 the commitment of answering that phone call at two or three o'clock in the morning, knowing that anytime your phone rings as, as mayor or an elected official at that time in the morning, that is never a good call. It's never somebody call you and say, oh, you know, I just thought about you and just <laughs> want to call you at 2 a.m. and say hello. No, it's never a situation like that. No. Um, You're still it, doing so that, too. To know what that pressure is all about, there had to be a, a, a strong reason for me to get back in the race. Mm. And that strong reason for me getting back in is the fact that I see things in my community, in my city, that I don't like. Just two days ago, two nights ago, I had uh, a double homicide two blocks from my house, mm. two blocks from my house. That has never occurred like that before. Um, and I see a change in the neighborhood and the community. And that's just, this is just one neighborhood, but it's happening all over the city. And we need someone who has the compassion, the understanding that you have to deal with those things, but it's not just having more police officers. You gotta have more programs. You got to have more involvement of talking to the, the, the people who are causing some of the problems. Um, I met with a group of ministers just the other day that wants want to have a, a gun buyback. Well, you got to have more than just a gun buyback because you don't want to give a guy for $50, $60 to buy an old rusty gun so that they can go and buy a newer automatic version yeah. of, of a gun. You got to give them something more than just a monetary uh, 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 contribution for that weapon. You got to give them hope. You got to create programs that you can help them get rid of that uh, um, fine that took away their driver's license. So they out there driving without a driver's license and they can't go and get a job because uh, uh, they got that little record on, on, on them because they didn't show up for court. So in order to pay their rent or to help mama pay the rent, they go out there and sell a little dime bag of weed. And then they find out, well, hey, once I get in the game, I can make more money if I start selling crack. Or I can make more money if I start uh, selling fentanyl and all these other things. Next thing you know, they're caught up in a turf war over mm. who's going to control this particular property. So as a mayor, you got to understand that link in the community and how do you break that link. And I think I'm the only one in this, in this race that really understands that. So with that, with that part said, how in touch are you with the new generation? You now have a, a younger mayor that's that's currently in office that you're running up against. And not to throw him up under the bus, but I'm going to just come oh, no, no, no. politically correct no, no. with this. What have you seen that he hasn't done that needs to be done? Well, those list of things that I just said, addressing mm -hmm. the issues of the core root of what the problem is uh, with crime and with, with violent crime in our communities. It's not just a matter of having uh, more police officers, even though now we're, we're understaffed as it relates to police officers. It's keeping your word. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a politician, uh, my dad, on, on, the, on the night that I was first elected uh, as a city councilor, he took me outside where no one else was around. He said, son, you're going down to the city hall and you take two things with you. One, you take your name, and two, you take your word. He said, now I gave you your name. Keep it clean. And only you can keep your word or give your word. He said, if you give your word, keep your word. And I've always lived by that. And I think sometimes with our younger politicians, they don't understand. It's easy to get up and make promises. But how are you going to deliver on those promises? How are you yeah. going to make sure that if I tell someone I'm going to uh, clean up your community and your, your, your street, how are you going to keep that commitment to them? And I think that's what's lacking in, in the understanding of a lot of young folks. And, and what my responsibility is, is to educate them as to what it really takes to be a leader in the political arena. Mm -hmm. There were more young people working under my administration 
there were more young people who were touched by me that I brought them along. Just just about every uh, politician that's under, I'd say, 50, I in some way impacted their lives to get involved in politics. I know how to reach out to young people, but it's not just a matter of give, getting with the woke crowd. You also have to get them, give them the skill set necessary to uh, deal with the challenges that are out there. Just like Reverend James Orange, just like Tom and Rand grabbed me by my hand and said, let me tell you what the real story is. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to be able to do with our young people. Let me tell them what the real story is. Let we me ask you a question. I'm curious, you know, we talked a little bit. How do you think we address crime in a human way? I had a program uh, in place in which we went out and, and we actually looked at who's being arrested uh, and then do a deep dive into what, what's that what, What's that kid's background or what's that young adult? First of all, let me say this. You ain't going to save everybody, okay? And, and I don't want you to think that I think we just go out there and grab people by the hand and stay cool by y'all and crime is going to go away. <laughs> that, that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but there are so many young folks who are lost. There are so many young folks who have not gotten the educational skills that they need to survive in a decent way in our community. And you've got to set up programs. You've you got to spend the money, make a commitment to put those funds in place that will give them the tools that they need. Now, when I, when, when I say give them the funds, that doesn't mean defund the police. I promise you, you really don't want to do that. And the Republicans took that to say that, you know, African-Americans or Black Lives Matters don't want police. You get your house shot up. First person you want to call is the police mm -hmm. to come and see who shot your house up or who broke into your house or who did all these things. So not defund the police, but fund other programs, make a commitment for the resources necessary to put in place to give people the tools that they don't have to turn to crime because it's some good kids out there. I, yeah. I had um, I had about five good friends growing up as a teenager. One of them was killed, uh, street violence. Another one spent his life uh, in jail. He, he passed a little time, a short time ago. Well, we all grew up in the same neighborhood. We all went to the same school. Why did one end up dead? Another one end up in jail. And here I ended up as mayor of the city of Birmingham. Another one of uh, my friends ended up as a vice president in charge of uh, supply uh, diversification at Ford Motor Company. But what, what, what happened that made the difference? It was opportunities. It was people taking some of us by our hands and showing us a better way. And those other two didn't get that. And that's what I want to make sure that those people who are involved in uh, less than ideal situations, get the resources that they need to get to be a better, better person. Speaking of opportunities, we got your friend, Ed Moore here. And um, yep. actually, Ed has um, created a lot of um, opportunities for work. And uh, how have you, have you teamed up with Ed to bring his uh, workforce into the central parts of Alabama and do you plan on helping him extend it to create more jobs, more opportunities for young people? More importantly, what <coughs> what are you what would you do to keep and bring more jobs into a city that seems to be crippled both financially and uh, um, um, trying to reinstill a new focus on Alabama or should we say a more what, what was on what was the daughter's what was her slogan with that more <coughs> more change <laughs> more is better more. why don't you take over Ed? why don't you take over <laughs> yeah maybe let's put this one put this in if we if we had 49 other ed moores one in each state we could turn this country around because i have not seen a more dynamic brother when it comes down to business acumen uh, getting out into to the community, showing what economic viability is all about. I mean, he does so many things. Uh, he, he, he's uh, sometimes I think he's a Jamaican. The many <laughs> jobs, jobs. And, and things he's involved with. Uh, he, he got so many things going on. But Ed, no, I'll do whatever I can to help him in his endeavors. But more importantly, I hope that he shares with uh, other individuals. Um, 
Let's see. I got a call coming in. I'm sorry. Let me. That's all right. Hit that. I, I lost you all on the screen. But um, no, uh, Ed is not only a good Kappa brother. He's just a good brother. Period. Regardless of what title he has. And I know that uh, in my administration, my door is always open to Ed more. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I got a question I, I want to ask you. Um, it's going back to what you were saying earlier about you never tooted your own horn when you were mayor, and you did. Yeah. I can vouch for that. Um, everything that's happening in the city of Birmingham now, as far as the growth, is what yeah. he put in play. Right. Um, he had a big impact in bringing Amazon to Central Alabama. Mm-hmm which I remember you telling me Amazon was to be actually located directly in the city of Birmingham. Exactly. But once you didn't get reelected, um, somebody from Montgomery decided to push forward to be moved to Bessemer outside the city of Birmingham. And you were making a comment earlier to me about um, the economic status in Huntsville compared to Birmingham. Right, right. And we also, Mayor, had a conversation about how somebody in Montgomery is trying to move as much finances as they can to North Alabama because of the growth there and um, with the government entities that um, that's building up. But you got a big issue coming to Birmingham here in the next year or so. And I know I'm very inter- interested as to seeing how you're going to handle this. You got the largest HBCU black football game being played in Birmingham. Grambling? No. Mm-hmm. That's the Magic City Classic. Oh. That's Alabama a and Alabama State. And they're going to play this fall, but that contract is about to, come, uh, is, is about to uh, end at Legion Field. Mm-hmm. And yet we build a stadium that will not, a brand new stadium downtown Birmingham that will not house the biggest sporting event in the city. And I remember when you were in office, I asked you when are they going to break ground on the Dome Stadium. And you did say, trying to get another $30 million to put a top on it. Exactly. We didn't put that top on that stadium. So we need $30 million. Well, that stadium's already built. Yes, it's being built as we speak. Yeah, okay. it's, it's basically almost done. Without a top. Without a top. And what's your thoughts on that as far as building a, a, um, a venue such as that this day and age and you won't be able to use that venue 365 days a year. It won't even house the biggest HBCU college football game in the country. Well, before I answer that question more directly, let me go back to something that you said before about um, the challenges that Birmingham faced from outside sources within the state. Right. Uh, in 2011, in fact, this is the 10-year anniversary of the tornadoes that struck uh, in Alabama that uh, destroyed half of uh, Tuscaloosa and hit one of our northwest uh, neighborhoods here in Birmingham. And I can recall on that particular occasion uh, when the tornado hit, I went and met with uh, our two Republican senators. I met with our Democratic uh, representative trying to get funding. I also met with the president and um, um uh, several depart- uh, secretaries of, of various departments trying to get funding to come uh, to Birmingham to fix up uh, the neighborhoods that were destroyed. And when I got to those Republican senators, one of them told me, said, don't waste your time trying to rebuild those communities. Birmingham needs to downsize. You need to, to reduce the size of Birmingham uh, and and." Uh, just sit back and it'll take care of itself. I, I told him, I'm the mayor. I can't sit back. I, I, I can't um, talk about not rebuilding those neighborhoods. I gave my word that we will build those neighborhoods back better. I had to fight and scrape for every dime that we brought into Birmingham to rebuild uh, those neighborhoods, the Pratt, Pratt City, Inslee mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. And then I had a talk with my colleague, uh, Walt Maddox, who was the mayor of Tuscaloosa that mm-hmm. was hit, he said, every day I'm getting checks from the federal government. And I didn't even know it was coming because those senators were pumping money every day into that, uh, that city. But I had to struggle to get money for my city. In the meantime, they was uh, uh, opening up federal dollars going into Huntsville because that's the area that they want to target to be the major city 
in the state of Alabama to take that presence away from Birmingham. Now, some people say it's because Birmingham is a, a predominantly black city, which may be true. I'm not going to say what it is. I just know they're trying to make Huntsville the number one city. Number one city. Now, when I spoke about bringing Amazon to Birmingham, they said, oh, it's just a political gimmick. Amazon would never come to Birmingham. And we provided Amazon with all kind of documentation showing them a, a site within the city of Birmingham. Uh, shortly after that was when I suffered the defeat in office. And the next thing I know, the people, some of the people who were saying that uh, Amazon would never come to Birmingham or come to Alabama, they were down there pitching a site down in Bessemer which is, you know, like 20 miles from, from Birmingham. So the hard work that I put into it yielded fruits, but not fruits for the city of Birmingham, but it did yield fruits for the entire area. Now that brings us to the stadium questions. I, along with several other mayors who came before me, had always envisioned having a dome stadium. Uh, in fact, I was, I was at the last game that they played in the Georgia Dome uh, in Atlanta uh, before they opened up the Mercedes-Benz Dome. And I was talking to the uh, former mayor. I said, can I get some tractor-trailer trucks to come over here and just get that dome and take it back to Birmingham? Y'all don't have to tear it down. We'll come get it. And, and they did the same thing, started laughing. Uh, but because of, of some internal politics at the University, uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, when they asked me if I would build an on-campus stadium for them, and I told them no, uh, then they asked that the city of Birmingham foot the entire cost of building an open-air stadium at the Civic Center site. And I told them that the city of Birmingham would participate only if UAB put in money, only if the county put in money, only if the state of Alabama put in money, and only if uh, uh, the Civic Center Authority put in money. Well, all of those entities said, well, we don't have the money, but Birmingham does because we had created a surplus and I said, well, we just, we're not going to do it. The most that I would commit would be a million dollars. Uh, and that's contingent upon all those other entities putting money in. Well, again, the election has consequences. The mayor who won that election, he agreed to foot the whole bill, uh, at least uh, a total of $90 million that's in wow. there. Uh, and that has caused a lot of consternation about where will the Magic City Classic play? Because as you know, Ed, the, the classic part of the, the excitement about it is the tailgating that goes on outside uh, a week leading up to it. And, and, and let me also say this. When I took office uh, as mayor the last time around, the Magic City Classic only had about a $13 million uh, economic impact. Uh, it started out that people would show up on that Thursday, party Friday, have the game on on Saturday and leave out on Monday. I had gotten it up to make it a full one week event where people would come in that uh, Saturday, Sunday before the game and stay the entire week, and it yielded economic impact of two hundred and forty. I'm mean, not two hundred and forty million of twenty four million dollars within a short period of time. Well, I don't know if we're going to be able to have that same impact. One because the city will not control that new stadium, even though the city has put up the lion's share of the money for it. It's going to be controlled by the Civic Center Authority and UAB. And they're, they're not looking at what's in the best interest of the city, but what's in the best in, uh, interest of those entities. So I'm a little concerned there. But until I get back into the mayor's office, there's nothing, well, there's nothing we can do about the construction of it. But there's certainly something that we can do about who plays there, what kind of control the city has in that involvement, and to make sure that we're still treated equi equitably and fairly. Mayor, wow. Mayor, I got a question. Yeah. NFL draft. University of Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> Road <laughs> tie. Road tie. You guys, you know. <laughs> tell me about the if tell me about the school. We talked about this. I had a I have a client that went that went there and she said uh, her first encounter, her only encounters with with African Americans were the athletes. Yeah. Clearly, Alabama produced great athletes. So it's a two-part question here. Mm -hmm. How how much impact financially does that university provide to the community, and more importantly, how much how much uh, is the school invested now 
into African Americans that are non-athletic actually going there getting a degree because I thought it was totally odd that here's a young lady from Cromwell, Indiana going to school down in Alabama and her only interaction or her only visualization of seeing African Americans were just athletes. I said, are you serious? And I think we talked about that a little bit and you said you guys have addressed that issue. So the two-part question is, what has the, from what you know, what has the college done to get more non-athletic individuals, minorities, into the school. And definitely, there's a lot of economic dollars. You guys won the national championships back to back to back, and you produced some of the best athletes in this year's draft. I think, what, like eight first-rounders came out. When Bear Bryant was the coach of Alabama, he was one of the greatest coaches of all time. But here in Alabama, he wasn't just a coach. He He was a deity. They looked at him as a football god. And when when he passed away, uh, all the coaches came after him were compared to, to Coach Bryant and fell short in that comparison, even though some won championships. But it wasn't until we got Nick Saban right. that the whole attitude towards uh, athletics and the shadow of Bear Bryant was removed. Now, he's he's still a big figure. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, but Nick Saban has created his own path. Right. Nick Saban has been a catalyst for change as it relates to the University of, of Alabama involvement in the greater community. Now, he doesn't say a whole lot, but when you see a coach that gets out in March with his African-American players who are, are showing Black Lives Matter signs, then that, say, that says a lot. Uh, yeah. When you see Nick Saban reaching out into the community, helping uh, young kids with, with different programs to educate them and feed them uh, through he and his wife's foundation, that speaks volume. Bear Bryant didn't do things like that. Right. Uh, and, and to my knowledge, I don't know of any other uh, coach at a major university here in the state. They didn't do things like that. Right. But it gave a sense of empowerment to the student body in which they have an African-American uh, student body president, uh, the head of the uh, Black University uh, Alumni Association. They've been speaking out on issues concerning the names of buildings after slaveholders and things of that nature. Uh, and the, the atmosphere is changing now, where students and Black alumni feel that they can be more active in speaking out against their concerns, mm-hmm but also be more active in speaking out in terms of the direction that the university uh, needs to go in. So that change is occurring. Okay. But it's all because of people like Nick Saban. It's all because of, 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 of people who have stepped from the shadows and say, I'm going to start speaking up about these things that we haven't spoken on in the past. Okay. What would you going to say? Yolanda? I was going to say, we're kind of at the top of the hour. Yeah. So, you know, as you think about where you're going, from a branding perspective, I would say, why should I vote for you? So when you think about this this podcast going viral, because we're going to make it go viral. Jason, you heard that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> make sure you call out your link, man. Yes. <laughs> why, well, sh- why should somebody vote call for out you? Mailforbirmingham.com. That's, all you need to know is go to that <laughs> website. But also, uh, part, of, part of my goal is to share with the citizen. You know, a lot of these young people, they see these entertainment districts that they're going going to. That's because of my administration. They see the, the bright lights in, in Birmingham. The uh, We have one of the most beautiful sites on our interstate. And Ed, you, you've seen the, uh, uh, the color lights that we have on the interstate. It changed the whole character of downtown Birmingham. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I spoke at a church uh, this morning that's in my old neighborhood. And right next to the church was what uh, used to be known as Loveman Village Housing Project. Right. Well, my administration tore all of those buildings down, and we put the funding in place to build new housing in that community that the residents who lived in those old projects can now come to a beautiful community. Mm-hmm. I didn't let people know that we were working on all of those things, that I was responsible for those things. And so through my, my campaigning now, I'm going to show them what I've done in the past, but also create that vision of where we need to go in the future. Uh, 
we need to create more jobs for people, not just those who are in technology, but people to do things with their hands because everybody can't can't get on board with technology. Everybody can't go to a four-year institution, but everybody can do something with their hands. And we've got to create those opportunities for those individuals as well. And I promise you, I'm going to make Birmingham a place that we all can be proud of, that we have an international presence because Birmingham is known around the world as uh, the cradle of civil rights, a national presence that we uh, can participate in changing uh, our police community relationships by creating sensitivity within our police officers to get them to understand that they represent the citizens and they're not overseers of the citizens and that we can create financial opportunities for everyone so that someone doesn't have to be out in the street selling drugs, that they can have a decent job and not have to look over their shoulder or sleep with one eye open. I have the skill sets to be able to do that. I just need the opportunity and the votes from the voters of Birmingham to make that happen. Yeah. You got something you want to say to the mayor? Oh, well, he know I'm riding with him. Um, we've been friends for a while, and I, I've know, I know what he's brought to the table, and I know what he can bring to the table for the city of Birmingham. And I know where his heart is. And, um, Mary, you got my vote. Thank you. I appreciate that. And and I would say to all of you out there who know this man can do what he says he can do, he's done it before, he's demonstrated it, and his humility, you know, may have impacted some things, but the fact that he is a gracious person speaks volumes in itself. If you ride with him and you did not vote for him the last time, you know you need to get up, get out, and vote, because it just, every vote counts. Don't think your vote does not count. So get out there and make a change if that's what you believe in. And you heard that from the Branthologist. Thank you guys. <laughs> Mayor, thank you for being on the Andre the Beast show. Uh, guys, reach out, support him. The man's been there. He's 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 been there before. He's going back again. Uh, change is about to happen once again in Alabama. You got my vote. We're going to make sure this goes out. People vote for him. August when is when is the election? August twenty August twenty fourth. Get yes. out and vote. Believe me, if your August vote 24th. matters. August twenty fourth. Your votes matter. Your votes yeah. matter. Bail, yeah. com. Yeah, it's bailforbirmingham.com. Bailforbirmingham.com. And get up off a few of their yeah. dollars, too, because, you know, it takes money to make things happen. So oh, yeah. I'm saying it. Get up <laughs> off your dollars, you know. I appreciate that, guys. And, you know, when, when I ran for mayor before, I said uh, in, in 2009, I said I was going to change the flavor of Birmingham, and I changed the flavor. This time around, I'm going to make it sweeter by building back better. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Make it sweeter by Talk building to you later, back man. better. <laughs> <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Andre the Beast Creighton Show. <laughs>